Hello and welcome to another episode of the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I'm joined as usual by my wonderful co-host Tom. Hello. And uh, we're back with a double feature episode this time as we look at uh, two different adaptations of The Lower Depths. It's a unique it's a unique position to be in because you don't often get the same subject matter, two films based off the same play, by two not only different filmmakers but excellent filmmakers. Yeah, two two master craftsmen doing uh, different adaptations, and uh, suffice to say that they are very different. <laughs> So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Indeed. But uh, before we get into the discussion, I guess, um, you know, how about a little bit of a quarantine checkup? Uh, how are you going? Are you talking to me or the... No, to you, yeah, to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the listeners can't speak back. Uh, no, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I think at this stage, everything's starting to not normalize, but people are going back to work in dribs and drabs and all that sort of thing. So uh, that's why... Our uh, our frequency of podcasts is, is dropped back closer to what it was before with the once per week. Yeah, yeah, we had we had the couple of week run there where we did the multiple episodes, but obviously we have not updated the feed in a week now. Um, yeah, it's I, I'm back, kind of working semi full, like you know, drips and drabs, like Tom said, and we all forget that Tom has a what four month old now, so <laughs> life life yeah. can be difficult with one of those. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, well, I'm, I'm fine with doing, um, I mean, I've enjoyed doing more films a week. However, I will say that some of those films that I watched took me six hours to, to view because of interruptions. Yeah. So, um, especially th- this podcast where we have to do uh, two in the one sitting, I was, mm. pulled my hair out, i got to say. Yeah, and then but in anyway. like, I think two episodes time, we've got to do three and then like, Soon after that, we've got to do five, so it's just like... Yeah, oh, my goodness. We're raining it back in once a week for the time being. <laughs> we, we, we might end up, like, you know, if we feel like it dropping, like, an extra one here and there, but, you know, for, for the time being, we're, we're back to usual. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess... Good. Uh, the, the world is, yeah. is normalizing a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Like, we're kind of... It, that's a th- What is it? How... That saying of, like, it takes, what, 21 days to either break a habit or, or establish a, ha- a habit. So, like, you know, we've all been inside for three, four weeks now. So it's like, all right, this is fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. Ish. <laughs> but uh, on that note, should we get cracking with the lower depths? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I watched... I decided to watch them uh, chronologically. So I, I watched... I. Um, yeah, Jean Renoir's first... And I also decided that because I, I like, Kurosawa is my probably my favorite director of all time at this point, and so I thought I'd finish with a bang, uh, by yeah. watching his one last. And um, actually, to my surprise, I I, I liked Renoir's more. Uh, spoiler alert! Me too. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. quite quite a bit more, to be honest. Yeah, it's interesting. They they tackle uh, Maxim Gorky's play from nineteen oh one. Uh, in a very different way, they both have, uh, they both explore the same themes, but the presentation and the tone is so mm. drastically different between the two. I think we should start with, um, let's explore Renoir's first. We'll yep. explore Kurosawa's, and then we'll finish up with the. I mean, we'll compare through throughout, but I think um, we'll stick to the single films for now. 
Yeah, um, I was. This would be now the time where I read out the synopsis on the Criterion edition. But um, the the synopsis there is kind of more talking about the fact that it's two master filmmakers adapting the same play. So, mm-hmm. in lieu of that, I am going to jump over to IMDb. Okay. All right. So here is the IMDb synopsis instead. A charismatic thief makes friends with a bankrupt baron who comes to live in the thief's slum. Meanwhile, the thief seeks the love of a young woman who is held emotionally captive by her slumlord family. Quick and to the point. Quick and to the point, yeah. Nice and simple. Now, Ren, uh, and they have it listed as uh, the Lower Depths, a.k.a. Underworld. Renoir's has got the subtitle. Or the the, yeah, well, the that, alternate it's title. Like that's the Eng- yeah, the English alternate title. Okay, interesting. Mm. Uh, I know that the play itself had a subtitle of "Scenes from Russian Life," and it's actually mm-hmm. really interesting that this film, this play, has been adapted many, many times, and from all over the world. There's there's obviously uh, Renoir's version. Kurosawa is obviously set in Edo, Japan. There's an Indian version. There's one that was produced by um, some Chinese filmmakers, Russian one, a Finnish one. So it's all... I mean, everybody can relate to... Well, I, I assume everybody can relate to uh, being deprived, let's say, um, of... Yeah, it has it has the universal kind of us versus them themes going, mm-hmm. the, the, the upper class versus lower class, um, you know, as well as emotional manipulation, love... Yeah, it's got it's got it all. Yeah, but interestingly, with Renoir's version, the Baron is the major difference um, to the play and to Kurosawa's version, in that the yeah. Baron is already in the lower depths, the slums, um, whereas Renoir decided that we're going to take the Baron's character and watch him fall into the lower depths. Yeah, we're going to actually have show his. His uh, fall from grace, I guess. Which, uh, to be honest, I loved the, yeah. the fact that we were able to actually show his fall, his fall from grace, and him actually getting established in the slums, and then also so well establishing um, his relationship with uh, Jean Jabin's character. Yeah, Vasquez Ash is his name. I believe so. Yes. Yeah, and just I- pulling up all the cast now. Yeah, so that that's got to be one of the best bromances I've seen on film ever uh, as soon as they meet and that whole the, whole, the scene where uh, Vasquez Ash comes into Bar- the Baron's home to, to steal and he's taken the Baron's gun and the Baron was wishing to shoot himself in the head because he's you know, lost all of his stuff and doesn't own anything anymore and they both see eye to eye and say you know what let's just have a dinner and a drink because we are really no different at this point yeah it's 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 lo- he- because the Baron has lost everything, he has no pretenses that his title means anything anymore. He is just... He's able to meet this man who is a thief who's broken into his house to rob him, uh, unknowing that none of this shit's mine, so take what you want. Yeah. It's, they're meeting on, an, on a level playing field. And the Baron even says that you know, all he's done all his life is just change uniforms, so there's really... Yeah everything that's happened to him is almost superficial to him. So when he loses everything, he's not... What's so charming about his character is he's not phased by that. And he's so 
he's he's still so happy and and just com- he seems completely fine with the situation. Yeah, I mean, we do get that little brief moment at the beginning when he loses the card game and everything, um, and it's something that I had written down as like a great, and it, it, like great character moment and also example of Renoir being just a wonderful filmmaker where it's um the discussion about how he's a gambling addict and you know how like if it will ruin his night if he wins or loses and uh the woman saying that that his tell is after the game he always goes out for a cigarette if he lights it he won if he can't light a cigarette he's lost because he's too nervous thinking about what's happening now and then of course Renoir shows how he lost and you're just like beautiful you've just visually told us all we need to know about what's happening to this character moving forward. You didn't need to just hammer it home. It's just this nice, beautiful scene there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I also really appreciated uh, the the visual style of the Renoir version in that mm. it, it looks... It kind of reminded me of um, David Lane's Oliver Twist. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very, I, mean? like, I get that. Like everything, yeah. everything really looks like a set. Uh, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to give you the feeling of, of a, a realistic slum, but it has this quality of of unrealism to it. Um, because, I mean, if you compare to Kurosawa's version, it's stark, and the the sets are very very stark. This one yeah. is more just like it looks like a play. It's everything is set yeah. up in such a way that it's not. It's not quite real enough to give you that dramatic sense of this is a disgusting slum, and it's similar in um, in Oliver yeah. Twist as well. It's that heightened kind of theatrical mm. idea of a slum, I yeah. guess. Yeah, because I I'd written in my notes that like it, it's the way he stages it in terms of placing his characters around the room, in particular when once we get to the slum. Um, it's very theatrical, where you have, like, pockets of people placed around the scene, and our characters, as well as the camera, just glide and float in and amongst them all. Mm-hmm. Like, even though he's staging his his uh, actors in a very theatrical way, his camera is never presenting it in a theatrical way. It's not just being removed and letting it be flat and play out like it was a you know theatrical performance. The camera itself is... Like just floating and intermingling with all the actors and the characters, it's wonderful camera work. It is, yeah. Uh, I was really engaged by that, and uh, I think it's a good point to bring up now that um, it is this film is uh, a member of the poetic realism gang uh, of mm-hmm. the 1930s in France, which was a movement that informed. I mean, we already talked about uh, neo the Italian neo realism uh, era of post World War Two, and it very much informed that. So it's got. It's got a. It's still dealing with the working class or the poor people, general day living of the poor. And in fact, actually, I learned that uh, Luciano Visconti, who we just did the Leopard a few weeks ago, mm. um, he was an assistant director to, to Renoir. Not on this film, but oh really? Yeah, on other films. So you can see that this is kind of the uh, the prologue to Italian neorealism, and it has. I think like the the interesting thing is it's the poetic version is the poetic title there really lends itself well to being let's have a realistic story but dress it up so that it's much more approachable and, and not as heavy-handed on on the the themes. Yeah, we we can we can talk about these real 
themes and issues that everyone's dealing with in their everyday life, but we're going to approach them in a somewhat romanticized way. Yeah, definitely romanticized, yeah. And that's why this yeah. film was, was so lovely to watch. I mean, we're still dealing with, obviously, some pretty full-on um, crazy themes of of jealousy and, 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 you know, some kind of even slavery to, to some extent. Yeah. Um, oh, very much so. But it's th- but throughout you have this, you know, the bromance, for example, that's just like, oh, this is this is lovely. Not just the bromance, but the actual romance as well itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. But um, what what I found like absolute like at, at putting the friendship of uh, Pepel and the Baron aside, what what really grabbed me and made me kind of sit up and pay attention with this one is uh, all the residents of the slop of the flop house. I was gonna say slop house, the flop house. <laughs> um, the the way Renoir so perfectly was able to give like get across that there's a real sense that all of these characters have no uh, sense of worth. They, they, he's really made them fully realized in the sense of they are, they're all just missing something in their lives and they have no self-respect to some degree. And, and, and then we later find out that that's kind of systematically being beaten out of them mm-hmm. to some degree by the landlord. Yeah, the, the villain of the story. Uh, everybody, he, he's, he's essentially creating a Stockholm Syndrome type situation yeah. so that he can keep leeching money and off of these people in a horrible situation. It's which again kind of plays a nice parallel to you know the upper class, and you're like you don't have to be in the upper class to be a piece of shit. Yeah, that's leeching money off of the poor. You can be poor and doing that as well. Actually, yeah, and and he's similar. This is uh, what's his name? Kostelev is the landlord's name. Uh, but he's mm-hmm. he's also similar in to Oliver Twist. He's he's very similar to Fagin as well. Um, yeah, yeah, taking advantage of those that um <clears throat> can't take care of themselves. Yeah, but going back to what you're saying, it's it's a really nice uh, what do you call it? Um, juxtaposition. It's like it's like of, yeah. between the landlord who is poor and a piece of shit, and then the Baron who was rich and a very very approachable, nice, compassionate man. So I like yeah. that in this film, while you're exploring the, the problems of, of what, what, what being poor can do to a person's mind, at the same time, it's not a class problem. It's just a human problem. Yeah. And it, it's, yeah, that's basically the whole crux of the film. It, it's the narrative is like pretty much putting forward the idea of all of these characters learning to grow above their position. The fact that they don't, because they're in this position doesn't mean that they have to act a certain way. They can rise above it. And, mm. yeah, um, you know, the, the, using the Baron as the character that kind of is the ultimate example of that. He's a character that's t- completely in flux throughout his life. And the film, like like you said, just he's had many uniform changes and he just kind of stays constant. He doesn't let the situation or his financial areas or where he's living affect who he is as a person. Mm. Well, would you say and that... Would you say that he... I think a lot of the characters are involved in a form of self-deception to some degree. Like the drunk is obviously, oh, 100%. you know, yeah. yeah, the drunk is drinking because he's trying to fool himself out of the problems that he's facing. And a lot of the other yeah, characters and, are and doing the same thing. And not just that as well, but like, like I was saying, the Stockholm syndrome type aspect that the landlord's pinning on them. It's, it's, like the drunk, for example, he drinks because that's what he's being told that he is and all he'll ever be is the drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pepel is um, cautious to do anything with his life because he is just always being told, you're the thief. That's that's what you are. That's who you are. You can't change. 
And then the second the Baron enters these people's lives, they see, oh shit, you you can change. He's a perfect example of a man who he didn't necessarily change for the better, but he is still the same person he was. So this is like kind of proving to these people that, oh shit, we can, our life can't, isn't just stuck on this one track. We can actually change and shift. Yeah. I think the, the Baron offers, his character offers a clarity. Um, yeah. He's not, he's typically, he's not really fooling himself. In fact, it's almost kind of the inverse. He was, he thought he was uh, important because he wore uniforms and although those uniforms changed throughout, you know, his his baronhood, I don't know what you call a baron, but uh, <laughs> anyway, anyway um, even when that was all stripped away, he's just like, I'm, I'm still me. So uh, he, he becomes a kind of rock to compare everybody else to and, and they all respect him because because he do, does have that, that clear thought. Um, yeah. Anyway, that, that's, why I, that's why I like this film probably more than Kurosawa because the, the Baron is the major change and uh, he's, he explores the situation in such an interesting way. Yeah. Not just that, but we also have uh, 1930s Kenneth Branagh in the form of Jean Jabin here. Yeah, the he looks, Renoir's he looks go-to. So much like, yeah, he, he looks so much like Kenneth Branagh. It just makes it like, oh, you're instantly charming. Yeah. He's a, he's excellent. He's such a good actor. Yeah, I'm tr- I've been trying to think like what else we have seen him in. I mean, obviously, uh, the Grand Illusion, we, mm. like spine number one, way the fuck back. But I feel there was one or two others we'd we'd seen him in. I I only know him. You, you're probably almost certainly right. I I only can recall him from the Grand Illusion. Um, please enlighten me if you know if you know more of what we've watched. I I'm, I want to say we did a uh, Touche Par Grisby previously, mm-hmm. but I it's I'm, I'm I'm pulling a blank on it. I can't really remember much from that one. Yeah, I I, I don't. I'm I'm terrible at that kind of thing. I'm sorry to say. I know. I was I was just about to say I'm pulling a Tom and I can't remember the film. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, I'm I'm not actually too sure. Uh, Pepe Lodmoco, definitely. We, oh yeah, we yeah. Did, we saw him in that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> but suffice to say, great actor, uh, as Tom mentioned, he's Renoir's kind of go-to, his, uh, Scorsese slash DiCaprio to, I mean, De Niro slash DiCaprio for Scorsese, um, Mofuni for Kurosawa, so it's nice to kind of have him, see him pop up again, and in such a memorable role. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's, um, interesting the way that the, the story plays out for him in that, uh, I going off after watching Kurosawa's version, which is so stark, um, and also the idea that poetic realism in film typically doesn't have a very happy ending. Basically, any time, it's always you know the the hero or the protagonist always kind of it backfires, whatever it might be, and 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 they you know the happy ending is is sorry the ending is not that happy. But in this yeah. film, you know he. He heads off away from the slums to start a new a new life with his uh, with his new lover, mm-hmm. the maid. Uh, and even the the shot at the end where there's the camera, you know, they're walking off down the street and the camera kind of zooms out and you're watching. It's almost like you're watching a film within a film. 
Yeah, this which, beautiful kind of almost fairy tale picture box kind yeah. of disappearing. And you mentioned like romanticism there, so uh, it's like a really. I was surprised. I was expecting. I was expecting the story to go really dark and have you know everybody in prison or you know, whatever. Yeah, go the route that the Kurosawa one actually ends up going. <laughs> yeah, and well, then the play. Yeah. Um, yeah, but instead, like, a, yeah, it is Renoir's present using the text as a way to present a uplifting kind of positive take on it, which is really refreshing and nice. Mm. Like, yeah, the, you know, it has that happy ending. It has that multiple characters learning that they can rise above their situation. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah, it gives you a good a good taste in the mouth afterwards, and. Uh... It's very different to Kurosawa's. Mm. Yeah. Um, other key highlights that I, I loved uh, that I noticed, um, Renoir, ne- uh, whenever there's a scene between Pepel and the Baron together, he, um, they are always in the same frame together. It's like he never really breaks into coverage and shows them kind of talking to each other. They're always represented together in the same frame. Again, adding to that whole idea of, you know, he's a... The Baron's a conduit or, like, the an exemplification of what Pepel can achieve. It's, it's beautiful. It's such a well-made film. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 kind of nuanced. I think, like, uh, I'd be better off re-watching um, to pick up even on even more stuff. But, yeah, I, I mean, I think it was a slow start. Starting off in the slums um, is never going to really get you involved in in a 1936 film drama uh until until something happens and you just i mean you're not you're kind of exploring characters a little bit for half an hour i think at the you know half an hour mark that's when you have the first instance of uh the baron and uh jean gabin's character meeting and that's when i became fully engaged in the film but i must admit that there was i had to warm up to it a little bit Oh, for sure, because, yeah, you have that opening of, like, uh, welcome to the slums, you've got drunk accordion man running around, and then it's kind of just, <laughs> he's setting up everything, like, you know, this is the slumlord, this is the daughter that um, that Pepel's in love with, he's the, the mistress, it's like all of, setting up all the pieces before we can actually get, get on with the game. Yeah. Uh, that's all I have to say about Renoir's film. Yeah, I mean, likewise, I think for the sake of kind of speeding through and getting onto the Kurosawa, since we're doing a double this one, um, yeah, it, it, it's just a wonderful, nice, sweet little story. Mm. Um, yeah, it's very on the nose with its themes. <laughs> so that's fine. Yeah. I think the, the technicality <clears throat> of the film is uh, very smooth. So even if it's on the nose, <clears throat> it comes across as very, very watchable. Yeah. Alright, well, uh, let's move, jump ahead to uh, 1957 with uh, Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say uh, this is probably my least favourite Kurosawa film I've ever seen. This is the first, yeah, this is the, <laughs> this is the first yeah. time I've watched a Kurosawa film and, and gone like, you know what, I, I, I don't know if I like it. Yeah, uh, uh, I, very much so. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because... Yeah, like every time I watch a new Kurosawa, I'm very excited. And this one, I mean, putting beside putting aside the uh, the fact that it is such a stark premise, and it's presented yeah. in such a stark and dark way, 
Um, yeah. And it very real as well. Like uh, we were talking about the fact that, that Renoir's is fa- uh, romanticized. And this one, it is full, really full on. Like there's a 10 minute sequence at the start where this, this woman is just coughing up her lungs or something. It's, yeah, I mean, God, for the first, like, 45, 45, 50 minutes of the film, a lot of it is revolving around this woman slowly dying on the rainy floor of this hut. Yeah. Like, it's bleak. And you're just watching people bicker, drink, attempt to try and not die, uh, yeah. gamble their money away, and pretend like everything's fine. And, and that, that is a, it's a really drawn-out sequence. It's like the first yeah. half of the film. I mean, you could even say that the whole film is just that. Well, I, I made a note of the first time we actually see, uh, barring like the opening credits, um, mm-hmm. which are kind of an exterior shot. Um, I wrote, had to take note of the time code of when the first time we actually leave the inside of the flop house is. And it was 36 and a half minutes in is the first time we actually step foot outside. Mm-hmm. And it's for a 15 second shot <laughs> of just the alleyway next to the flop house. Okay. Then we're back inside and we don't get back outside until I think the hour 30 mark. It's when there's a, f- a so fight. It, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For the last sort of half hour of the film. That's we, the first time you see the outside. sky. That's the first time you see the sky in that in the film. And it's, yeah, it's, it, it's while you're rough. watching two people fight in the street. So mm. it, it's, it's, it's hard to watch in that regard, but I also didn't find it that engaging. I did enjoy some of the, the, um, the characters that were playing, uh, drinking and playing their games. Uh, there's a kind of comedy yeah. about it somewhat. Yeah. But on the whole, it, it's, it just wasn't. I couldn't sink my teeth into the characters like I did with, you know, the Baron and all that sort of stuff. So, I, I, I think I have an idea of why that might be. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I have the same problem. And I think it's because there is no clear protagonist, the, at least for the first half hour, 45 minutes. Like, comparing it to the Renoir, we have, we're, both, we're introduced to both Pepel and the Baron pretty early on, and we know who they are, what they're striving for, what their motivations are. Totally get it. Um, with Kurosawa's, it's just a group of people that seem to all have equal screen time and equal. Like, there's no, there's no standout person. It's like, right, that's our conduit. That's who we're following. Mm-hmm. That's who's going to have an arc. That's who's going to grow. We don't have any of that. Instead, it's like an ensemble play. That, like, even more so than some of the Renoir stuff. It, it is just a group of say six to eight people in a room. You seldom hear their names, and it's just here you go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> get, get to uh, know and relate to these people. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you've 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 nailed it, dude. I, I think uh, I think that's exactly right. I will I will say that the f- the shots though, you're talking about everybody in the same frame. It's yeah. It's I mean it's a Kurosawa film, so obviously the blocking he's where he's putting everybody. Blocking, yeah. yeah, it's just it's really good, and I did enjoy that, but. That alone, I couldn't sustain um, yeah. my concentration, to be honest, that much uh, just yeah, by looking I, at the, the a, blocking, you know. I've got like my first note is that, like, you know, it's all taking place in the flop house, and that's fine because Kurosawa, like we said, is a master of blocking and the movement of his camera as well, how he kind of places it and shifts it to be able to like let people come into the scene and out of the scene. It's great. 
It's like a masterclass in how to block and stage simple dialogue scenes. Um, but there's no story. There's like literally nothing is happening for 45 minutes. It's just these characters lamenting about their lot in life. And that's, that's fine, but it's like, there's no exterior force. There's no driving force The like, we're lacking even the idea of like the, the love triangle really with the landlord and things doesn't really come in until nearly an hour, hour 20 into the film. Yeah. Um, and like with it all being kind of condensed and set in one location with people talking, um, I couldn't help but think of another Kurosawa film, arguably his best film, uh, High and Low, which it starts the exact same way, where it's nearly the first hour of the film taking place in one location with people doing nothing but talking, but there's story and tension to back up why you get engaged there. Yeah. That's right. With, with the kidnapping and that whole thing. It's essentially it's a very similar setup in terms of how it's shot, but it has story driving it, whereas this doesn't. But in High and Low, the, the protagonist is Mifune's character, and you yeah, can you, immediately relate to him. The, yeah. um, so I, I do think that you're, you've, you've got it right when you say that it's really hard to follow a story when you can't connect on an emotional level with somebody's yeah. story arc, with somebody's through line through a film so um, mm, I mean and, I, I tried Renoir, when we had two characters we were able to connect with <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so so yeah it's a, it's an odd I, 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 I feel at odds with the film because I want to I want to enjoy the technicality of it but it's it's kind of surprising to me that that I I, I just simply got bored Oh, very much so. I, I kind of agree with you there. Um, and I think it's... What what kind of obviously separates... Like, the big differences here is the complete and utter lack of the Baron character. Like, just does not even exist in this film. Hmm. Um, and I think by doing that, like, omitting that character, what Kurosawa was doing and trying to say with the film is that these people don't... It, if we're following the same kind of thematical route that uh, the Renoir film followed, where it is you have these people who are stuck in the situation of their life and then you have this outside person come in who is able to show them that they can reach above themselves. But then in by omitting that character, he's he's essentially... I'm wondering if his whole point of the film is with these people have to save themselves... They have to come to this realization themselves and overcome it. Uh, they, they can't have that exterior force kind of come in and show them that they can better themselves. They have to come to that realization themselves. And then that's what kind of leads to the darker ending of the film, which is, yeah, but will they? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's yeah. 1957, uh, post-World War Two. Yeah. So, I mean, anybody, especially in Japan, is going to be feeling pretty fucking down in the dumps. And so... I think Kurosawa would have felt like humanity at that point was pretty hopeless. And so, I mean, that, can't, that comes through in the film. Uh, and I think that's why you go... I mean, say that he... Say that he, he basically... I mean, he's obviously basing it off the play and he sees Renoir's film and he says, you know, I like that film, but you can't have anything like what the Baron is doing in this because, you know, we just went through a world war. And yeah. there is no way we're getting a happy ending because we don't deserve it. Um, 
so I mean I th- you, uh, you could have a I don't yeah well is that like yeah essentially what he's doing and saying is that like uh you know, for the Japanese version, it's, it's you know, we're post-World War Two. No one is going to come in to help us better ourselves or rise above our station. It's up to us to make that decision ourselves to, if we want to have a better life, if we want to better ourselves, we have to make those positive changes. No one's going to, no handouts here, no no inspiration. we got to do it ourselves. Whereas the Renoir version, which, you know, he filmed in France, um late 30s, beginning of the rise of power of Hitler and things, and the giant thing of his is, if we all rally together, we can overcome this evil. Like, you know, this thing that's oppressing us. Yeah, um... I'm kind of... I'm, I'm gonna bring up the quote at the end of the film, Kurosawa's mm. film. Uh, it's one of the... one of the game players in the slums. He says, it was such a great... I mean, he looks at the camera. The whole, the whole, mm. the whole film's finished, and he breaks the fourth wall, looks straight into the, the camera and at us, and he says it was such a great party. Then we had to go and ruin it. So, yeah. I think if we focus on this, we might be able to work out what's going on. And it's certainly everybody is living a a downtrodden life in complete, doing their best to deceive themselves, and reality just seems to start getting in the way. Um, and I think that's that's the theme in, in the play uh, that's the, certainly the theme in Kurosawa's version it's less so of a theme although plays a, 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 certainly plays a role in Renoir's but it's all kind of beautified and touched up um, cinematically and whatnot but um, yeah what do you think about that because it seems to me like that's the that's the major focus it's it just seems like Kurosawa is saying you know we can all we can all pretend everything's okay, but, you know, it's actually not. Uh, the real world can kick you in the teeth. Yeah. Um, I think maybe that's why he was driven to make this film after World War II. Um, yeah. Because it's everybody was, you know, living in maybe a, a dreamland, let's say, to some degree. And it takes a war. Uh, we're post-war and we need to, you know, we're going to get through this and yada, you know, the mm. whole industrial revolution type, you know, yay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't mm. know, it takes a war to, to, to kind of, kind of shake, you, shake you up. Into you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this is, this is still um, quite a while after the end. I mean, the end of World War Two. Yeah. But people obviously, well, it a- takes, takes decades or even a lifetime to, to kind of figure out a war, what's going on there and what's going on mentally. Well, that's the interesting thing of, like, where it actually falls in Kurosawa's filmography. It's, he's, you know, it it is a kind of of middle-of-the-road one there for him, like, especially post-war. Like, you know, he's already done Rashomon and Seven Samurai and Ikaru by this point. Um, So it's interesting for him to kind of go back and, yeah, this is, oh, this is the same year as Throne of Blood. Yeah, okay. So... It, it's it's interesting to see him kind of take a step back and do this kind of contemplative character study piece, I guess. And I, I'm not sure if it was like maybe it is just him being like, I want, I love this play, and I want to do, and I think it's a relevant. I think it's relevant for what Japan's going through at the moment. So let's do just a straight adaptation of that because he shot it quick as hell. It was shot uh, in four weeks. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. He, so he made it in a month. <laughs> he just kind of whipped it out and just did it. Uh, and I think that's because it's essentially a play. Like it's mm. one location with like 12 people and nothing but dialogue. Mm. There's no action really. There's no big set pieces. It is just, there's no music even. Yeah. It sounds like, it sounds like, uh, the, the history, the, the, the situation of his, of his time in Japan at that time, he's got some demon niggling away in the back of his head and he's, he's thinking, I've got to smash this film out. So I have, you know, explore these themes mm. and then, you know, kind of exercise that, that demonic thought if you want. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, yeah, it's, it's interesting that, that I, I fully did not engage with this film anyway. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fine film. Like it, does its job it's shot beautifully and the performances are great but it doesn't hook you or grab you in the same way that pretty much every other film Kurosawa's ever made does well but even let's talk about Mifune then because yeah that well that's the big shock because seeing that him top build yeah he's in maybe what 12 minutes of this film yeah and it's not it's not a particularly strong role um I mean, as you say, he's only in twelve minutes, so maybe he didn't get the time to 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 really flesh out the character, and maybe that's why you know I'm thinking like, why am I, why why am I not engaged with this film? Is it because Mufuni isn't really in it? And and as well, like compare that to Throne of Blood, the film that they made the exact same year, and it's like that the ending of Throne of Blood is unforgettable the like with all the arrows and him essentially losing his mind like yeah, it's yeah. incredible yeah so it, it could be a matter of like him more concentrating on that and kind of busy like I need to nail these Shakespearean monologues yeah yeah that's so iconic I, that like, you, yeah you, it's like you've got me for four days Akira that's that's all I'm going to show up for yeah but it wasn't even yeah it wasn't that strong of a performance I was and let down on multiple fronts here, but mm. but that's okay. I don't mind. Um, I'm I'm happy that I'm happy that it's a kind of double feature, and you get to watch the Renoir. It's still a fun yeah. exercise to to contrast and compare um, these two films at the same time. Oh, definitely, and and that's what I think. It's it's great criterion. Obviously, putting them out together is like that's that's it essentially. Is like let's just have a look at two masters adapting the same play and how it can be totally different in style and tone and meaning. It's great. Mm. I, I didn't necessarily love the Akira Kurosawa version, but I loved the exercise of viewing them both and comparing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. precisely. Me too. Um, I, w- I will say the, the props, the ultimate props to the Kurosawa version is the set design. It's fucking incredible. Yeah, as I said, it feels so real and so disgusting, um, mm. and complements well, the theme built, so much. Yeah, they they built that set, so that whole slum house is they built it for real, but they purposely built it at a seventy-five degree angle, so like all the everything's kind of crooked and sideways to make it feel more dilapidated and more falling apart. Like if everything's on a tilt, it just kind of puts you off watching. Yeah. So it's like an automatic yeah. Dutch like, angle. Yeah, exactly. And like all the door frames and everything are just kind of really crooked and fucked. Yeah. So it's, and it's the actors, the actors don't quite fit in, and they're always kind of bent over some some way. And yeah, yeah, it's good. You're right. Mm. The, the sets are phenomenal. Yeah. 
like there's definitely good stuff in the Kurosawa version. It is just, yeah, it, it doesn't engage <laughs> you as much as the Renoir. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all good. It's all right. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, honestly, that kind of does me for both of these. Mm-hmm. Got any trivia or anything? Or? Um, the only little bit of trivia that I have that I didn't kind of already slip in there was uh, for the Renoir version. It was listed as one of the top foreign films by the National Board of Review. And for the Kurosawa version, uh, it was the first appearance in a Kurosawa film by his favorite leading lady, Kyoko Kagawa. Uh, they collaborated on five films together. And what, what else is, do I know her from? Uh, she was also in uh, Tokyo Story that we saw not that long ago. She played the youngest daughter in that. Sorry, I'm just pulling it up. In Tokyo Story, like the uh, Ozu film? Yeah. Okay. She, she played like the youngest daughter in that. Um... In terms of Kurosawa, she uh, is in High and Low oh, as Mifune's wife in that. Um, just scrolling through, what else? Redbeard, she played the crazy woman. Oh yeah, she was fucking excellent in that, yeah. The madman in that, um, yeah. And obviously, like, in this one, she's playing the, the slumlord daughter. Oh, the, the sister, sorry. The, the one who is the object of desire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, actually, yeah. she was she was um, probably the most engaging out of anybody in the film. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. like yeah, she was. To which point, I'd be almost, I'd be way more interested in the film if it was like, let's. How interesting would it have been if the adaptation was let's follow this exact same story but from her perspective as opposed to the perspective of the men that live in the slumlord? That that would have been actually kind of cool, like a flip kind of inverted version. Mm. Uh, well, there's, there's like, it, dozens of versions like of this play out there on film, so someone may have already done yeah. that. Exactly, just not Kurosawa. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I guess otherwise we'll move on to the actual Criterion edition itself. Um, it's actually out of print from Criterion, uh, but it is available to stream on the Criterion channel. But if you can track down the DVD copy, it comes with an audio commentary on Kurosawa's The Lower Depths, uh, featuring Japanese film expert Donald Ritchie. A 33-minute documentary on Kurosawa's The Lower Depths from the series Akira Kurosawa. It is wonderful to create, including interviews with Kurosawa, actress Kyoko Kagawa, art director Yoshiro Murakari, and others. Uh, Introduction to Jean Renoir's The Lower Depths by the director himself. Cast biographies for Kurosawa's The Lower Depths by Stephen Prince, the author of The Warrior's Cinema. Uh, Original theatrical trailers, essays, and all that junk. You call those essays junk? I didn't mean to. I realised as it was coming out. People worked hard on these essays, man. I know, I know. And and it's great that Criterion actually provide those essays, so I shouldn't call them junk. Yeah. (laughs) Most of the time it helps us for these episodes by reading them. That's right. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I guess that'll probably wrap us up for this week's episode, looking at the lower depths, both Renoir and Kurosawa. But uh, we're back with more Ozu next week. Nice. Very nice. We, we, we have uh, what many people consider to be his unsung masterpiece, Early Summer. Well, I'm very excited because he's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I, I have not seen this, so I'm kind of hesitant to you know, even say that some people call it a masterpiece because I don't want to 
going to taint your your mind with that possibly, but uh, I'm very excited as well. Uh, should be good. Okay. Well, we'll see everybody uh, next week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you have any comments or queries, as usual, you can send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at CriterionQuest. Otherwise, we'll be back with Ozu next week. Um, for this week's episode, I'm Chris. And I'm Tom. See you next time.